0: Well, good morning. It is so good to be here together this morning, as was uh, mentioned by, by Alan. The day that for much of the world we have, we have set aside to remember the, the death of Christ and to remember the resurrection of Christ and what that means. And we do this, as Scott mentioned, we do this every first day of the week. There is not one set day that is, that is more, more important than the rest in regards to remembering the death of Christ other than the first day of the week in which the apostles, led by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told the disciples to gather together and to do that, to remember His death, to remember His resurrection, to remember His life, to remember His promises. But I, for one, am thankful that we live in a time where for even just one day out of the year, people think about Christ. And people think about the life of Christ and the death of Christ and His resurrection. I imagine there were Christians in the, in the first century. Christians living under the persecution of Rome. Christians who couldn't go outdoors without fear that they might be gathered up and, and taken off to the, to the, the circuses to be, to be killed in front of the Colosseum. To be paced onto fence posts and burned. I imagine they would have given anything for one day. For people to recognize the Messiah, the God of the way. I'm thankful that people reflect on him on this day. And we have started over the past several weeks looking at this idea of reflecting. We reflected on the church and what the Bible tells us about the church. And then we reflected upon God and who God is and what we learn about God and his word. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 tells us to med- meditate on things that are pure, things that are just, things that are holy. I can't think of too many things that are, far, that are more excellent. I can't think of anything that is, that is worthy of more praise than the Son of God. And so this morning we will reflect upon Him and what the Bible tells us about who He is. Opening open in your Bibles to the book of John, we're going to pretty much park ourselves in John and really not do a lot of flipping to, to any other passages this morning as we look through that. But before I say what I, what I want to say from John, I want to tell you some quotes uh, from some other people. Uh, the first one comes from a, a French general that lived in the 18th century. His name was Napoleon Bonaparte. You might think, what, is, what on earth does Napoleon Bonaparte have to say about Jesus? But he said, Alexander... Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have all founded empires, but what foundation did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded an empire upon love, and at this very hour, millions of men would die for him. Now, Napoleon Napoleon understood what it took to to build an empire, to build a kingdom, and he understood what it took to motivate men to fight and to live and to die for that kingdom. But he also understood and recognized that his efforts to build his kingdom, his efforts to motivate men, paled in comparison to the ability that Christ had. H.G. Wells, another notable name from around the 19th century, he wrote uh, some, some very well known science fiction books. He was also a historian, he was also an atheist. He says, I am a historian, I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Again, not a believer. Someone who simply looked back at history and looked at the impact of people that, ha- that they had over this time, and the impact that they had in their lives, and the way that that impact stretched beyond them, he said, I don't believe, but I recognize that this man was an important figure in our history. C.S. Lewis, author of the Chronicles of Narnia, um, wrote several, several very good, you know, interesting books. But he was also an atheist in his former life. He had this to say, and probably the most the, pro, the most difficult to read, but the most accurate of, the, of the, thir- the three men that we have just now talked about. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the very devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or this man was a madman, or something far worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. These three men, they recognized something about who Christ was. They might have missed the mark in several, several areas, and they are not our source of authority. But they recognize something about Christ. One, that He was very, very important. Alan mentioned that this, this morning, that, that He made a huge impact on, on, on history, outside of the Scripture, outside of His deity. You can't miss that. Two, that He has not left room for us to just say, well, He was a really good person. Because as a really good person, and if that's all he was, if he was not what he claimed to be, the son of God, then he was a liar. The morality of, of good teaching, it cannot be built upon lying. And so with those thoughts in mind, and I hope that we didn't come here this morning to hear the words of men, the words of, of, of men long ago, the words of me today, but rather the words of God. And in thinking about what has been said and what is already known about this man, Christ, the Jesus, uh, Jesus, the Christ, let's look at what the Bible has to say about him as well. Turn over to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, and start reading with me in verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread, after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, You come here, and Jesus answered to them and said, "Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me because you saw, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled." Now he says this looking back to the beginning of chapter six. He had performed a miracle where he had fed five thousand people with just a few loaves of bread, or a few loaves of. uh, Bread and some fish, excuse me. And so he tells them, you're looking for me not because of the miracle that you saw, which was to demonstrate the the, the power of the Christ, but rather because your bellies were filled. He goes on to say in verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And when they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God, Jesus answered and said to him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. And therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall never hunger, and he who believes in Me shall never thirst. This is the first of seven I Am statements that we find in John's Gospel, which John recorded of Jesus saying, used to reveal Himself to the world. Now the people of His day, as I said, they were looking for a sign. Give us something special. Give us something so we might believe, they asked. And as the bread of life, what He had to offer, and what they were missing, is that He had everything they needed to sustain their spiritual life. He didn't come to the world to solve the world's hunger issues. One of the things that he's pointing out here. Don't, don't labor for the bread that, it, that that doesn't last. He said he wasn't here to fix the problems of world hunger, and he wasn't here to fix the problems of sickness and disease. He came to the world to provide something that the world desperately needed, and that's life. He came to provide life. And that life is the ability to approach God and to approach him acceptably. Maybe that's why he would later refer to himself in John chapter 8 and verse 12, again with one of these I am statements saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Back in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, Malachi writes and he spoke about the the son of righteousness. And he doesn't use S-O-N. He uses S-U-N. The son of righteousness is coming. And when the son of righteousness comes... He will arise with healing in His wings for those who fear the name of the Lord. Jesus is that Son of righteousness. He provides the light that they needed. And the light is the only thing, it's interesting, the light is the only thing that you can cast upon filth, upon upon dirt and, and, and stains. It's the only thing that you can put on it that doesn't come away contaminated. If we have a stain, if we have... Uh, muddy floors if we have something we go to clean them and we we get some water and we mop that up the water it, it, it contaminates it soaks up that that filth that is contaminated by it when you place light upon filth it will it will illuminate it when you take the light away it doesn't bring the filth with it it isn't contaminated by that filth Jesus is that perfect light that came into the world to illuminate the world so that we might see the filth of the world the filth of our own lives But he's not contaminated by that. Even though he might, even though he would take the sins of the world upon himself, it can never contaminate him. It can never make him unholy. In a world of moral darkness, he is the illumination that we have that we need not stumble as we walk uh, through through a world of darkness. Another interesting thing that he says about himself is found over in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And then he would go on to say in verse 9 again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This is very similar to the words of the psalmist back in Psalm 79, verse 13, who says, we, the people and sheep of your pasture will give you thanks forever. Jesus is saying, I am the way to join The flock belonging to the Lord. If you wish to be a sheep in the flock belonging to the Lord, you must go in through the door of the sheep. And I am that door. I am the way to enter in. He then go on to tell them them that in doing so, he was also the way to find pasture in verse 10. It says, the thief does not come in except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it far more abundantly. He leads His sheep to a life more abundant. Even though those who chose to follow after Him, as we mentioned at the beginning of this lesson, dealt with terrible, terrible consequences from following after and keeping the faith. Jesus said their life was far more abundant. Even though for for many of us, their life looked terrible. Their life was short. Their life was filled with, with pain and with suffering. But they were able to truly live in peace and in joy. Even throughout that persecution and pain. Realizing that they were receiving the greater life. They were receiving a life far more abundant in eternity. Not only is he the door to the sheep then, but he goes on to say that I am also the good shepherd of the sheep. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. And I am known by my own. To see the picture Jesus is painting here, looking back to sheep and to shepherding and, and, and over and over again using that picture, we need to understand for just a moment what the Old Testament says uh, and, and what the Jews had in view of this idea of the shepherd-sheep relationship. In Psalm 23, David writes very plainly, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Psalm 80, verse 1, it says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, Thou that leads Joseph like a flock. Psalm 95, He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Throughout the Old Testament, in many places, <clears throat> the shepherd of Israel is God. He is the one that shepherds, He is the one that is that is guiding, He is the one that is protecting the flock of Israel. And so when Jesus makes these claims, I am the door to the sheep, I am the way into the flock, I am the good shepherd. What are we to make with that? Undeniably, Jesus was making the claim that I am God. So many people heard this claim and, and, and revolted against it. They couldn't accept it. it. It filled them with hate. It filled them with, with a desire to, to have Him killed. But Jesus couldn't have been any less clear had He just came out and said, I am God, in referring to Himself as the shepherd. And He goes on to say, I'm willing to give my life for the sheep and i'm willing to know my sheep intimately what he was saying is i'm a god and i'm a god who cares it was not unheard of for a shepherd to die in protection of the flock uh, the shepherds had a, a a little bit of a difficult life in that they had to take care of these sheep that oftentimes weren't necessarily theirs maybe it belonged to a a, a a rich owner of some sort they were hired to take care of the of the sheep and so they would go, and if one of them got sick or one of them got lost, they needed to make sure that they went and found that sheep. And if an animal came in to attack, they were, it was their responsibility to run the, attack of the animal off to protect the sheep. And it wasn't unheard of for shepherds to go out and to be killed, to be, to be slain by, by some wild animal or to be lost in the wilderness and die. But it was unheard of. The metaphor that Jesus was using here was completely unheard of for a shepherd to ever walk into the sheepfold, to look at his sheep and say, I'm going to give my life for you. I'm going to die for you. That is my purpose and that is my plan. Reality was surpassing the metaphor when Jesus says, I am the God that looks after you and that cares for you and that wants to know you and is willing to give His life for you. And the reason He had the ability and the right to say that was because John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus says to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Again, this is yet another proclamation of Jesus being God in the flesh. Who else controls the power over life and over death? He was saying, I am resurrection incarnate. I am resurrection walking around in the flesh. And in a moment, he's going to cry out to Lazarus, who's been dead for three days. Come forth. And Lazarus is going to obey that command. And that come forth that he proclaims to Lazarus is by no means limited to Lazarus alone, but rather to all the dead of the earth. Whether good, whether bad, all the dead are going to one day hear the cry of of Jesus to come forth. And he is the one that makes that resurrection from the dead possible. Now he wasn't saying that I've abolished physical death. Certainly that was going to be the case. We were going to see that in his own life, that he would die. But he had abolished the significance of physical death. Christians in that day, Christians in our day, and Christians until the day which Christ returns will have to pay the natural debt to life because of sin. They will have to pay the debt of death. But because of our link with Christ, the resurrection and the life, death is in reality not the end, but our beginning. And he's the one that makes the life thereafter resurrection, eternally possible. He would then go on to say in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very interesting phrase there at the end of verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is this belief that has been around arguably since the beginning of time, since creation, We've named it humanism in later days, but it is the belief that there is nothing greater than the human being. Nothing greater than mankind. There is no level that you, can, uh, that you can ever attain to that is higher than that of man. Now I want to say that that, that viewpoint is pretty sad to me in looking around and just seeing the amazing complexities even of the grass of the earth, but much less looking into the heavens, looking into the Red River Gorge, looking into the creation that is all around us to see that there has to be something greater than just me to look at the far mysterious complexities of that. But this belief says, no, there is nothing higher than me. There was a man uh, in the 13th century. His name was Thomas Aquinas. He... He learned a lot from studying the philosophies of men like Aristotle, Socrates, but he came to a conclusion, and I don't have near enough the mind to try and explain everything behind this conclusion, Uh, but he did something by looking at water, and he recognized something about water. He says in 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 his studies and in his journals, he says that water has the potential to be more than water. If you put it in, in a colder temperature, it'll turn to ice. If you put it into a hotter temperature, it'll turn to a gas, into steam. So it has potential to be more, but it is not actually ice, and it is not actually gas, it is water. Something has to change it. That's what he noticed. It seems like a very elementary notice. We, we, I think we all see that at a very early age in, in school. But then he went a step farther and said, what is it that changes it? If you put water out into the outdoors and and the temperature drops, and it turns the ice. So the temperature changing is what changes the water. But what changes the temperature? And he said, well, the wind blows from different directions and brings in different pressure systems and starts to change the, 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 the pressure in the area that you're in, and that drops the temperature. But what changes that? And he kept logically following these steps backwards that something has to change something for it to change until you reach a point where there's nothing left. There is something there that can't, nothing else can change it. And his conclusion, his conclusion says, if you keep following the process back, you find something that doesn't change. And whatever that something is, this we will call God. Now, he had many more things to say about this. And again, they're somewhere way up here. I don't don't understand all of them. What I do see is this. From a very basic viewpoint of looking at the world around us, it is obvious, it screams out that there is something greater than this world. There is something greater than this creation. And the problem is, is when we, rec- when we recognize that, as Romans says, that God's invisible powers are, are, are throughout his creation, yet the world, mankind, lies to themselves when they, when they say, no, he doesn't exist. When we recognize, when we quit lying to ourselves, we look around us, and we see that God is immediately presented throughout our life, then the problem that approaches us is this. What does that require of me? What does that mean for me? Because throughout his scripture, which claims the God of the universe created the universe in six days and and on the seventh day rested. The God of the universe created a relationship between man that was ruined by sin. The God of the universe created a, a way in which that man could come back into a relationship with him through giving of his son. That God over and over again says, I want to have a relationship with you. But that relationship has to be through holiness and through purity. That is seen over and over again throughout His Word. How do we do that? Jesus says, I am the way you do that. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He is the way to purity and to holiness. He is the objective means in which we can look at God's laws and precepts and recognize them as truth. And as we notice, he is the resurrection and the life. He is the only way in which an unpure and unholy creation can ever hope to stand before God in judgment and here enter in, enter into life eternal. And for this reason, no one comes to the Father except through Christ. And maybe that's why he said in John fifteen verse one that he was the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. In verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. He is the the source of true spiritual life. But as he was saying here, he's not that source for everyone. Only for those who are connected to him. Remember, he is the bread of life. He provides nourishment only for those who receive that nourishment and then allow it to produce fruit in their lives. Put that, that, that nourishment into action in their lives. Will He be the true vine to them? Will He give them access to the Father? Will they be able to access the Father through Him? I think the most shocking. We, we always say, we look up, there's seven I Am statements in, in, the, in the Gospel of John about Jesus. There's one more that we don't typically count. But I think it's the most shocking of them all. It's found in John chapter 8 and verse 58. Jesus there says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus declares his timelessness. He declares his faithfulness. I was there from the beginning. I was there watching as things happen. I was there raising up and sustaining this life. And I was there because I am deity. Exodus 3, Moses when, when he is approached by God at the burning bush, and God says, You go and you go to the Israelites in Egypt and you tell them that I am going to bring them out and I'm going to create in them a nation. And he says, They're not going to believe me. Who do I tell them said this? Who are you? And God said, I am who I am. So you tell them, I am since you. Jesus was saying, before Abraham was, I am. I want us to consider one last thought. And this one is, again, by a man of the world, uh, an, an author. His name was James A. Francis. He, said, uh, he, wrote, he wrote this little short story called One Solitary Life. He said he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpentry shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college, he never lived in a big city, and he never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness, and he had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away, one of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves, and while he was dying, his executioners were gambling for his garments, the only property that he had on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within my mark to say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever set, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. How could one man have such an impact on the world? Why would people go to their graves, be burned at the stake, be torn apart by wild animals for one man? Unless that one man was the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection in the life, the way, the truth in the life, the true vine... The great I am. Unless Jesus was the Christ. I hope that these very simple reflections, this, this hasn't been an in-depth study of, of Christ. We need to be doing that for all of our life. But these very simple reflections, I pray, will encourage you to seek Him and learn His will for you. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a good teacher. But Jesus was not a good man and a good teacher because men have looked at his lives. And found things to emulate. He was a good man and he was a good teacher. Because he was the son of God. We have a responsibility to that fact. We need to look at our own lives and say, am I going to accept that? That's our two choices that we have. To accept him as the son of God. Or to accept him as someone who 2,000 years ago told a lot of lies. And really fascinated a lot of people. That's your decision to make. Studying His Word, looking at the creation around us, looking at the the evidence that is there to support His claims, it's impossible for me not to see the power of God throughout the life of this man who was so much more than a man. And in His teachings, He called us to follow after Him. And He said that came at a cost. And we need to reflect on that cost. We need to think about it. It wasn't just a simple decision to say, okay, I believe you're the Son of God. That's really swell, and I'm going to try to live my life thinking about that. But the people who, who went as far as to say that He's the Son of God and changed their lives to follow Him were killed. The people who went as far to say He is the Son of God and follow Him were ran out of their homes and out of their cities, went penniless and were hungry, and they were thankful for it every day. When you look back and read some of the writings of these early people, they saw that even through all this, when you look at the life of of Paul, his apostle, who was stoned for the sake of Jesus, who was shipwrecked for the sake of Jesus, who was poor and thrown in jail, he said, I thank God for it. Because he recognized that at the end of the day, There was nothing that man could do to take away from him what Jesus had given him when he died and when he was raised up again. He gave him the hope of eternal life. He gave him that crown that will never, ever fade. And we have an opportunity to have that same thing as well. We're going to talk more about that this afternoon. I encourage you to come back and be with us this afternoon at 2.30 to think about that, about the promise of the crown. But until then, let's think about entering into the the race that is to run to receive that crown. In Mark Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, Jesus said that we are to go and we are to proclaim the gospel to all the world, to all those that will hear it, to all those that are willing to, to, to accept it, in season and out of season. Whenever we have the ability to tell someone about who Jesus is and about what He has done, we need to be telling them about it, but we need to have a response to it as well. He says, he that believes in it and is baptized, shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. This morning, if you have not done that, if you have not believed in Jesus as the Son of God, been willing to tell others about that, to confess through word and through your life that He is the Son of God, that He came to this earth and He did die for my sins, and He was raised up to eternity. And then follow our lives based around that to repent of our former life the sins that we used to be involved in and look after him as our king as our master and then to be baptized John uh, acts chapter 2 verse 38 when the men who crucified him maybe this is an excellent easter thought for us when they realized what they had done you have crucified the son of god you have taken the christ who came to this world to be the king and to establish his kingdom And unbeknownst to you, done exactly what he planned to do, but you are the ones that nailed him to the cross. And they were overcome with guilt. And they said, what do we do? What answer is there that you can give to someone in a situation like that? But The answer Peter gave them was repent. Turn away from the things you've been doing. Turn to God and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. A sin even as grave as crucifying the Christ can be forgiven in baptism. If we can help you in that this morning, or if having already done so, but realize you have turned away from God and you need to come back, won't you please let it be known right now as we stand and as we sing.